Hello, this is Future PMC. Uh, this week we are releasing part two of our first Front Mission Simulator episode to the main feed. This episode covers the production history of the 2022 Front Mission remake for the Nintendo Switch, as well as including discussion between me and Steven about our experiences playing the game itself. Uh, Steven had played Front Mission for the first time, whereas for me, uh, who had played the DS version previously, this was my second time through. This episode was originally published for Simulator patrons on February 1st, 2023. We're giving the main feed a rest for the month of May in this first week of June uh, to both prepare future coverage as well as keep on top of Radio Free Mercury and to allow Steven some extra time with Baby Hero number two. If you're listening to this episode when it hits the main feed on May 31st, I will be doing a run of True Crime New York City at Summer Games Done Quick 2023 late tonight or early in the morning, depending on where you are. And that's on the 1st of June. If you can't catch it live, uh, it should be up on the GDQ YouTube within 24 hours after that. While we are releasing this old patron-exclusive content to the main feed, we are still releasing new patron content week to week. That's our coverage of The Witch for Mercury, which I previously alluded to called Radio Free Mercury, that is available to all $5 patrons and up. Check that out, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm. Reminder, the first 13 episodes of Radio Free Mercury are available on the main feed. So you can check that out, see if you like it, consider joining the Patreon. Please look forward to our summer of Gunbuster, starting with the release of an episode discussing Blue Blazes before moving on to history episodes. That first episode should hit you, I think, on June 9th. Thank you so much for listening, and take care. This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have a very, very special episode. We are recording in person. I feel nostalgic. It's been a while, PMC, since we last recorded a podcast episode in person on a weeknight, on a work night of all things. I feel, I think the last time we did this was, this is a lot, this is real inside baseball, the Macross Plus history episode with Coop. I remember I was in the quote unquote studio. It was like night, and I remember I had did my day job and came over here. Yeah, I think wasn't that that was like a like a marathon session. I think we did two records back to back at one point there. I think so. That was something very silly. Yeah, yeah. Back in the the heyday of this, this the early heyday of Giant Robot FM. Now we're old men and we take our time with things <laughs> like this. Front Mission First Part, I guess, really Front Mission Simulator Part Two, dedicated to Front Mission First Remake. That's a real Square Enix-ass title right there. You know, I would expect nothing else because the Front Mission first thing is, of course, Square Enix's fault, and like specifically Square Enix's fault, too. It's not Squaresoft. It's not Forever Produ- you know, Forever Entertainment. That name is specifically Square Enix's fault. Yeah. Um, but I would have it no other way. That is also very nostalgic. This, of course, is our simulator episode, I believe our fifth or sixth simulator episode i believe this will be number five because number five. we had two on armored core one on zardion and then number four would have been our previous episode covering front mission sort of the the origin story of the first game in its first few versions before this version that we're about to discuss 
And it's just PMC and I, we have played through both campaigns. We're, not to spoil things, but we are pretty positive on the game, PMC? Question I mark? think you're going to find that we are more positive than a lot of what we've seen online. So we're, we might come across as sort of pitching the game to you. I hope so, because based on Twitter chatter or social media presence, not a lot of people are playing or have played Front Mission First Remake. Yeah, a lot of tweets... I've seen have been, I didn't know this was out. This is the first time hearing of it, et cetera, et cetera. So hopefully we'll shed a light on it. If not that, then this will be a fun marker on the beginning. I guess a fun episode marking the beginning of our front mission journey. Yeah, it should be noted that we have a long-term plan to cover every front mission game. So obviously we're starting with the first game and its remake, but we do mean every game, I mean, within reason. So that's definitely your gun hazard, your evolved, uh, you know, et cetera. Some things might be harder to get to. We can't promise too much in the way of online coverage. <laughs> I, 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 we're definitely going to dedicate an episode, God willing, if to the, like, in my mind, it's going to be called Front Mission. I can't remember. Like, I had a name for it. But the games that we really can't play or dedicate a whole episode to, I definitely want to give them historical coverage. Uh, I'm looking at you, Front Mission 2089-2. That's a game that will probably never be translated. I'm hoping 2089, the DS game, is going to be translated at some point. Uh, actually, I'm really eager to play that game, having just played through First Remake. But without further ado, let's jump in. I do have one addendum at the beginning. Um, in our history episode, we talked about a lot of the supplemental material that came out in the wake or before the first Front Mission game hit Super, Super Famicom back in '95. Okay, there's been some contra a very small drama in the Front Mission community. Apparently, Front Mission Zero, which was described online as a prequel manga, doesn't actually exist in the form that it was presented as, or maybe not exist at all. Apparently, a duplicitous Front Mission fan threw in some false information on the the wiki, the Front Mission wiki, indicating that Front Mission Zero was its own full fledged thing doesn't really seem that's the case which kind of makes sense because there was very little documentation on front mission zero uh, as opposed to everything else which there are a lot of scans and pictures of so just uh, for the set the record straight i don't think front mission zero exists So right at the start, I think it's really worthwhile to note that Forever Entertainment, not Square Enix, handled the lion's share of development on Front Mission First Remake. In fact, without the efforts of this small Polish studio, Remake would probably not be a thing. As far as I know, it was pitched on their initiative and created according to their vision, based, of course, on the original game. Now, contrary to what I believe, Forever Entertainment has been around for a while. The studio will be celebrating its 15th birthday in less than two years. It was founded in 2010, and at its beginning, Forever Entertainment got its start developing a lot of low-budget stuff. No judgment, just seems that they specialize in a very particular brand of indie game. Uh, they developed some kids' games based off some Eastern European cartoons, I think. 
a bunch of pretty neat looking arcade games. And also, very interestingly, a series of rhythm games featuring a resurrected Frederick Chopin, who, according to the illustrations, is ready to rock and roll. And there's, I think, four of those games or three of those games. All of these games are well represented on Steam. So if you're interested in what Forever has done in the distant past, you can definitely check that out. PMC, have you ever heard of any of these games? Did you even know Forever Entertainment was a thing in like 2013? No, I, I, I would have been very out of the loop on this kind of stuff. I would have been like many other people either playing Minecraft or whatever was on sale on Steam at the time, the, sort of that early era of Steam sales. So, Wait, you were a Minecraft guy? I didn't in, know that. In like PMC. 2011, 2012, yeah. Mind blown. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Well, this was the problem. I, my nephew asked me to help him make magic potions in Minecraft, and I had to explain that when I played Minecraft, there was no magic, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, which, which is a struggle when people update games, as, as we'll discuss later. Now, as the years wore on, the studio began to garner more notoriety. Riding the initial hype behind VR in the mid-2010s, Forever Entertainment developed games to take advantage of the budding medium. But as interest for headsets began to wane, the company pivoted to another strategy that has sustained them up until the present, acquiring licenses to retro properties. You could have kind of put quotes around retro. In 2018, Forever Entertainment published, not developed, Fear Effect Sedna, a poorly received sequel to the 90s cult classic. PMC, you've played a, uh, a Fear Effect game, right? Yes, uh, Fear Effect 1 was one of the uh, the classic quintessential blockbuster rental experiences for me. Uh, definitely a excellent rental game. So yes, I, I'm familiar with Fear Effect. I remember it through cultural osmosis. Correct me if I'm wrong. The game was pretty horny on main, correct? So you're- Or was it marketed as such? The sequel okay. had a lot of marketing that was very uh, lesbian horny on main, mm-hmm. and that's what a lot of people remember. Okay, yeah, I remember uh, some OPM and EGM adverts suggesting as much. But people seem fond of the series. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people regard its, especially its visual appearance, very well. The storytelling is very grimy and mind bending. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a, a treat visually. Playing it is okay. Interestingly, Forever Entertainment is developing, apparently, a remake of the first Fear Effect game. They are developing a bunch of remakes, which may or may not see the light of day, as we'll talk about. Now, I don't know how the fuck Forever Entertainment brokered these deals, but they got the keys to some venerable Japanese video game franchises. In 2019, they inked a licensing agreement with Sega and announced remakes of the first two Panzer Dragoon games. We're still waiting on Zwei, but the first game came out in 2020. PMC, I know you didn't play it, but do you remember how this remake was received? Did you hear any buzz about this at all? So the person I remember talking about this was a fellow speedrun streamer friend, Pete Dorr, mm-hmm. who remarked that it, it was pretty lackluster at launch. There were some flaws, but it did get cleaned up. Yeah. I mean, that's really like the... The reoccurring trend here, Forever Entertainment tends to release presentable remakes that are a little buggy at launch, but they're in it for the long haul and they support it in the long run, like for months and even sometimes years to come. I hear, I heard horror stories, especially of the Switch version when the remake launched, like the targeting, the lock-on reticule would only lock on maybe 50% of the time. Sometimes I've heard some of those complaints are a bit overblown, but some people swear that the Switch version was not playable at launch, but they cleaned that up. 
I bought it the other day. I didn't get around to playing it. It's only an hour long, so shame on me. But it was on sale for like $2, and I had $10 in like eShop money. So I was like, what the hell? And I, I picked it up. I, I'm, I'm a Panzer Dragoon fan. I think the art style is fine. Purists really hold the Saturn aesthetics in high regard. It's not easy to, if you want to do it through official means, it's not easy to play that first game. Um, so I think it's a suitable remake. And I think it the art style is admirable considering they're not using the original assets and it's also not the original dev team behind it. It doesn't feel totally inauthentic, which I know is not the, like the best back-of-the-box quote to have, but I, I it, what the job they did was admirable, I think. There's a workmanship to it that I appreciate it. Now, even though the initial response to Panzer Dragoon Remake, as PMC pointed out, was mixed, Forever Entertainment supported it in the long run by addressing bugs and balance issues with subsequent patches. Now, we don't have sales data, at least as far as I know, but Sega must have been pleased because soon after they handed Forever the reins to another one of their respected franchises, House of the Dead. The remake of the first game came out last April. Like with Zwei, we're still waiting on footage or information on the remake of 2. Because when they announced the publishing deal, they said, yes, we have the licensing rights to House of the Dead. We are doing 1 and 2. And I hold 2 in very high regard. Suffer like G suffered. I played a lot of House of the Dead 2 in arcades. And I'm actually interested in picking up this remake because I need something. I'm interested in a nice co-op game. And based on the video footage I watched, the art style like holds up. I think it's a decent take aesthetically on the original game. And I hear it plays all right, too. Now, in addition to building up a relationship with Sega, they've also built up a relationship with Square Enix, which started with the release of Fear Effect Sedna. PMC, do you remember the Square Enix Collective? I do. It's also, you know, so it was an effort, right, to for Square to license out some of the IPs they weren't using. But if you got to remember, at the time the Square Enix Collective was a thing, that was also when they still they still owned a lot more IPs. Yeah. A lot of these IPs that it's actually, I'm uncertain because my, my understanding is I think the ones that would have been associated with like Eidos, I think those have been now sold off. I, I tried to look this up. Yeah. It's unclear at this point. Who uh, owns Fear Effect now? I would have to assume somebody else. <laughs> That's what I thought too. That's why I didn't you know, put it in my I, I, I mean, per, hopefully whatever contract that, uh, that Forever Entertainment was working under would, in the event of a sale, either you know reimburse them for their work or otherwise permit them to proceed. Like I don't, I don't think Square Enix was was desperate to, uh, you know, shelve any products uh, projects on account of that. Uh, but who knows what Square Enix is thinking? Maybe they left like on the cutting room floor. They left the rights to Fear Effect as they're running. Idos could be. Um, I was looking through the list. Nothing else of note really came of the collective. I'm not really condemning the other games released because of it. It just seemed like Square is like, all right, how can we support indie games? How can we do some good PR? And like, what licenses do we, what licenses do we not hold in high regard that we can give off to smaller companies to do something with? Unsurprisingly, no Japanese IPs were really reimagined through this deal. They really uh, hold those pretty tightly to the chest, but. I hear that, well, I hear that Sedna was pretty terrible, but the I think they got the original writer back for it, so maybe like Fear Effect Purist really found something of value in it. But anyway, this this is the reason that, this is like the catalyst that got Square talking with Forever Entertainment. 
I imagine, like with Sega, Square Enix was happy with Forever's work, at least to a certain degree, because they did partner with them to remake the first three Front Mission games. I do wonder how instrumental Shinji Hashimoto, who is the original producer of Front Mission, we talked about him, he's the Square Enix executive laughing meme, uh, um, was to this partnership. He's been one of the series' few advocates within Square, like Left Alive, for better or for worse, probably wouldn't have happened without him. And I wonder what happens to Front Mission now that he's no longer at Square. We have some recent news, some recent Front Mission news to talk about at the end of this episode. And I'm curious what's to become of this franchise post Front Mission 3 remake if it comes out. I'm very curious about that. Like Front Mission 2 seems somewhat tangible. We have some trailers of it. Front Mission 3 feels vaporware-ish, but we'll see. But Forever Entertainment has a lot of staying power. So hopefully four years down the line, we see that remake come out. Now, Forever's Front Mission remake, along with 2, was originally announced during the February 2022 Direct. PMC, do you remember where we were in our podcasting journey at that time? Like, what was your reaction to the announcement? So it it was funny for it to happen at that time because as a podcast, we were just starting out with Giant Robot FM and we had decided that we wanted to do video game coverage. That was not something we had done really with the old podcast. We now really wanted to commit to that as a as a pillar or an essential element of what we were doing. And so we thought, you know, why not start out with Front Mission? It'll it'll help get us up to speed. It'll be, you know, one of, the, one of our long-term projects and we can just hit it right off with the DS version and, you know, if We'll, we'll we'll worry about two when we get there and, and so forth and so on. Uh, but of course, it was the February 2022 Direct and uh, thing, things got a little scrambled. I, I think my personal reaction is that I was, and I still am, anytime we talk about Front Mission on this podcast, even if we're really talking about Front Mission first, I am usually going to interject with, I need this game to do well. So I can actually have an official English version of Front Mission Two. Yeah, everything's riding on Front Mission Two actually coming out. I like, I, 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 not that I don't want there to be a nice Front Mission Three remake, but let us be honest: the important thing here is Front Mission Two in English. I have actually receipts here because I went back in our Discord at the time in early February. The Giant Robot FM Discord is very quaint. There's like four or five of us. It's uh, since grown, which we appreciate, and on. February 9th, 2022, at 5.05 p.m. Eastern Eastern Standard Time, PMC wrote, writes, taking huge fucking psychic damage right now. Uh, <laughs> you dropped a Chris Kohler, Kohler tweet. Japan Direct just kicked off with remakes of Front Mission 1 and 2. <laughs> well, because remember with that Direct, the you know, this is always the case with these Nintendo Directs, but the Japanese ones are different. Uh, sometimes to the exclusion of some games, but often different to the ordering. So we did not see. So there was a period of time where, where you know, Stephen, me, uh, anyone else who's actively tweeting about it. So Chris Culler, Austin Walker, whoever else are like, oh my God, are they not going to announce it in this direct? <laughs> like, is there going to be only Front Mission 2 for Switch in Japanese? I remember I was intrigued, excited, enthusiastic but also thought fuck this throws off our schedule because we 
Because I was like, I'm not going to play the DS version now. Wait for this remake. So that's when we slotted in Armored Core and then Project Phantasma and Master Arena subsequently after, which I think worked out for the best. Yeah, as it turns out, that worked out perfectly, both, uh, you know, in terms of uh, supporting speedrunning adventures as well as, you know, the announcement of Armored Core 6. That's good, too, because I picked up Master of Arena for about $45. Yeah, before before the the prices went way up. And it's much more expensive. Well, not too. It's much more expensive now. Um, yeah, if you're an Armored Core collector and want to make some cash on the side, sell off your Armored Core collection, but you'll make good money nowadays. Now, however, forever, so it's early February, everyone's excited for Front Mission 1 and 2, which is surprising because <laughs> Front Mission comes out 10 months later, crickets, but we'll get to that. Forever went radio silent for the rest of the spring and summer. PMC, PMC and I, PMC and I for basically 10 months griped about the lack of a Front Mission release date and the lack of a Gunbuster release date. We have both now. We have Front Mission uh, on our switches and Gunbuster is just a few months away. So I don't know what we're going to gripe about now, but we have that. I guess Front Mission Mission 2. Yeah, Yeah, come on. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, we were both worried that the game had become vaporware. Fortunately, it reappeared during the September 2022 Direct. Forever had then dragged their feet with the release date for a couple of months until finally announcing it would be hitting the eShop on November 31st. It was funny because they kept saying the November release date. They said November, and then like when in November? The absolute ass end of November. (laughs) So, interestingly, the game is scheduled to receive a physical release. There might be some shady business here. I don't know what's going on. So, initially, it was announced that Forever Limited, which, if I'm reading the tea leaves right, I think is a subsidiary of Forever Entertainment, and it was announced that they would be handling publishing and distribution in Europe. For the record, Forever Entertainment has a lot of subsidiaries. I don't mean to suggest that it's all shady business. Um, A lot of those subsidiaries do a lot of this heavy lifting when it comes to developing all these games. Actually, for a small Polish studio, they're doing pretty well for themselves. So it seems that Forever Limited makes small press runs, I guess small print runs of their games, of their library. They announced a few SKUs of the Front Mission first remake physical edition. Uh, They seem pretty cool. I know, PMC, you're not a collector. Um, I'm not quite the collector I used to be, but you get some pins. And the original... In the original conception of it, you got some pins, a metal case, a manual. doesn't seem like this is coming out anymore. Uh, their Twitter page hasn't been updated in over a month. And since then, it has been announced that Microids will be releasing the game in Europe and North America sometime in the spring and summer, respectively. Spring in Europe, summer in North America. The Microids edition, just one version. It comes with, of course, a Switch case. You get a cool little lenticular piece of artwork a printed game manual i'm a little interested in that because forever entertainment hasn't really talked about the development of the game so i'm curious if there are any interesting nuggets in there and two lithographs i know pmc is shaking his head like who the fuck would buy this but i might be that person if the price point's right i would expect that limited run games would be releasing this because they released physical editions of panzer dragoon and i think house of the dead i know definitely panzer dragoon i'm not sure about house of the dead in the united states so it's a little surprising that they're not handling this, but it's still pretty cool. And I don't know. I like it Like if I have a copy of one, two, and three all next to each other. I have most like physical copies of games we've covered uh, on Simulator. Not that I can show it off to anyone. Maybe I'll show it off to my, my progeny uh, generations down the line. Like here's my copy of G-Savior on the PS2, which I won't even be using to play the game, but that's a story for another time. 
PMC, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't think it's unfair to say that the Front Mission remake was largely overlooked by the game's press. I don't think that's a crit- that's I don't mean that as a criticism of the major outlets. Like I get it. The 2022 holiday season was crammed with a lot of releases. Square Enix alone released almost two dozen games in the fall and winter, including strategy RPGs like Dio Field Chronicle, which also came and went without so much as a peep. Tactics Ogre Reborn, which got a lot of positive press. Project Triangle Strategy came out recently too. So it's not surprising that a remake of a 25-year-old niche strategy RPG fell under the radar. You've also, we're recording this in late January, we also have Fire Emblem Engage. Like, you have a very relatively advanced strategy RPG and, like, the most basic-ass strategy RPG. I could see why people chose um, these newer, more modern releases. But I noticed a pattern from people who played this remake and posted about it online. And this is more so from fans than from game crit folks. It doesn't seem that people were fond of the graphics. Like, I've read a range of complaints. Some people think the graphics are just too basic that the polygonal models don't cut it for 2022 or 2023. Some people don't, didn't take issue with the fidelity, but rather the style. I saw a lot of people criticizing just how colorful it is. Uh, a lot of people prefer the gritty, I'm going to put quotes right, grittier style of the original, which to be fair, I think holds a little bit more weight than, ew, these graphics are bad. So PMC, I'm going to let you weigh in here. How would you address these complaints? I would say a few things. First off, the original game is more colorful than you think it is. Yeah, exactly. That's the so that's the first thing. You watch that. Those suits look like, I mean, the, the ones that are colored red or green, they are red-ass, green-ass suits. There yeah. is no, you know, the and the details aren't that great. I think um, the when people think of the, the grit and grime, I honestly, okay, so one of the things that we're putting forth here is sort of the question of, uh, is the is the style basic or is it intentionally toyetic? And I feel like a question that fans of the original game should also be asking is, is it just basically an ugly Super Nintendo game or is it intentionally gritty or grimy? <laughs> because I'm not so certain of that. I spent, when I was, you know, I'll get to the speedrun stuff later, but, but when I was preparing for that, I was watching a lot of footage of the DS remake, which is for the most part, you know, very, very, very faithful graphically to the uh to the original super nintendo game we had also played a little bit of the original super nintendo fan translation before we played the remake and that is a super nintendo game the the <laughs> details are not too great i think the font and like menus are particularly ugly uh, i really do not miss those uh so you know i, I don't know i, I there's there, there are details i do enjoy it's still a game that i played and had fun with but i definitely I, I would I would ask people to think about how intentional the Super Nintendo game was from a studio like G-Craft, which made games like Ark the Lad, which are not lookers. Ark the Lad is... I like Ark the Lad. It's ugly. Fun to play. Ugly. Have you played Ark the Lad? I have not. I've watched people play okay. it. I've watched You'd like it. it. It's a very accessible would, strategy yeah, RPG yeah. with a lot of charm, as you would expect. And not a whole lot of pop culture references to <laughs> either working design's credit or discredit, depending on what line of the spectrum you fall on. I, I agree with what you said about Toyetic. Um, I think that the aesthetic of the remake is a more appropriate vision of Front Mission compared to the original, Like if, if you get what I'm throwing down there. And I know that probably sounds like heresy. 
let me point you in this direction. Like Sakaguchi enlisted Ko Yokoyama to craft miniature models and dioramas for all the Wanzers, which all look gorgeous. We post a lot of these uh, screens, or I guess these pieces, pictures of these pieces of artwork on Twitter. We mentioned this in the history episode too. Sakaguchi was super into model kits and mecha, which influenced the production of the game. So I think it's fair to say that the first game is the most toyetic in the series. Even on the Super Famicom, like you can customize all the colors of the Wanzers to differentiate them on the map. I feel like the proportions of the mechs are more squat and compact like toys. They'll change in form as the series goes on. I also think the island setting lends itself to a more dynamic color palette. Like it's less industrial on purpose. I, I don't know. I really dig it. And I would, I wouldn't go like, I wouldn't punch someone in the face for not like, I wouldn't like vehemently disagree with someone for not liking the graphics of Front Mission First Remake, but I, I would argue on behalf of its vision because I think it complements the intent of the creators more than they might realize at first glance. Yeah, and, and that was definitely too what I was getting at with the Toyota comment is that I think especially these uh, Vonsers that have the, you know, the, the influence of the, the Koyukiyama miniatures and all the different designers they worked on it, I think, you know, in the mid nineties, the, the people who did this were especially interested, I think in models and toys and things like that. And so it's not a bad thing to say that they are toyetic. I think that is the, the intention and the vision. I wonder what happened to those models. Maybe Okayama has some, maybe one sitting on Sakaguchi's desk in Hawaii right now. I would love if one appears on eBay or something or Yahoo, Yahoo auctions, because I bet it wouldn't go for like an astounding amount. But it would be it would be super cool, like collectible for mm-hmm. like the three front mission fans out there. Maybe that same front mission fan who put all that misinformation about <laughs> front mission zero online. And also, don't get me wrong, like PMC is a Super Nintendo hater. I think he's gone public with that information. I like sprites. I also like the Super Nintendo. I, I usually, well, I it's fifty fifty for me because I the older I get, the more charmed I am by the PlayStation Saturn era. But I like sprites. Sometimes I prefer them to polygons. Front Mission is ugly. On the Super Famicom, I'm sorry. Like, it, it pains me to say it, but I have to speak my truth here. Like PMC mentioned, I have the same issue with every single G-Craft 2D game. So that's basically everything but Front Mission 2. I also don't think Front Mission 2 is a looker. The games look washed out, muddy. If you bottled up the brown and gray look of 360 games and like dumped it, like spread that water all over a Super Famicom game, like that's what it would look like. And like PMC mentioned, the first two Ark the Lad games look just as drab. It's funny because if you take a look at Ark the Lad 3, which is not a G-Craft game, it is much, much, much more colorful. Not to say that game's incredibly gorgeous either, but you see where I'm going with this. I will say one thing that the original has for me graphically over the remake is the garage. I'm very partial to 2D mechs and the sprites in the garage and the shop not mission maps, because they look like ass. They look fantastic in the garage. The colors really pop. All the guns and equipment were made with a lot of care, and I appreciate... I could just imagine the pixel artist painstakingly crafting all this equipment, and it makes me, like, not sympathize with them, but, like, appreciate their work all the more. It also makes customizing your Vonsers really fun. I would even say a little bit more so than the remake, because, I don't know, I'm just so partial to that sprite work. And I feel like it's a little less special in the the remake. PMC, how do you fall on this? I think for me, I I can really go either way. Like I certainly do appreciate the artistry and labor that goes into making it possible to realize all the different combinations on Super Famicom, right? Too, because that's like a 
that's sort of an extra step above. When I think of customizing mechs, you know, I go to Armored Core first, and that's still even a PlayStation game. So to have something like this, uh, even though doesn't matter gameplay wise, which we'll get to later, <laughs> but just from an aesthetic perspective, it is pretty neat. Although I, I feel pretty well fed by by the remake as well. And this is especially like in our notes, we have a comparison of the garage screens. And certainly for me, I as I already said, the like the font and menus and like the presentation graphically of that information is just gross in the Super Famicom game. Like it's so much easier to digest in the remake. I think the if you wanted to play the best looking version of the original game i imagine you would have to go to the playstation version something tells me the wonder swan version doesn't look better yeah i think either the playstation or, or i mean the ds is is pretty comfortable it's just obviously you have to yeah if you're playing it on emulator I yeah. hate the, the ds screen makes things look worse yeah now it's not only the garage screens so even in addition to the garage screen stuff and the general look of the game i think that Forever Entertainment added a lot of neat flourishes in other areas, too. Like, some of the maps in the first campaign are real lookers. My favorite mission in the OCU campaign was the eighth mission, the Freedom City mission. Like, you're liberating Freedom City. It's fallen under UCS control. It's a densely packed urban environment. The mission takes place at night. Street lights illuminate portions of the river that runs through the middle of the city. There are, you see lights flickering in apartment buildings, neon shop signs. Like, it's such a fucking vibe. And Forever Entertainment, to their credit, added a lot of little touches in each of the maps. Like, obviously not in the Freedom City map, but on some of the uh, more jungle maps, you see animals flitting through the forest, birds flying in the air, trees swaying in the breeze, sometimes smoke billowing, billowing up from smokestacks. Like, that attention to detail is really, really nice to see. I will say, though, the OCU campaign looks better than the UCS campaign. Like, the maps in the second campaign seem a lot more sparse, drab, and lack those little details. Like, Freedom City, when you return to Freedom City in the second campaign, you could argue that there might be a narrative reason for this, but still, it is, even despite the fact that it's kind of, kind of war-torn, it is a different graphical beast, I'll say that. Yeah, it's interesting that just in terms of aesthetically, the UCS campaign ends up reusing a lot of maps, uh, even within the campaign itself. And I think a lot of them don't really like to me, the only the only real UCS map that is the ones that are that are different and stained out are the first two missions in South America and then the finale on the aircraft carrier, which is a very short mission anyway. You could see me if you go to PMC trilogy's twitch channel you could see me really eating it on those maps and i'll say this i'm a i consider myself maybe not a veteran strategy rpg player but a competent strategy rpg player it was much easier after those first two missions but i died a whole bunch in south america also i really like the touched up static backgrounds okay we're gonna talk about this every front mission game i'm sure the bar rules it's such a vibe but the shop and the command center also look really good there, to, the, to the second campaign's credit, there's a lot more of these locations in the UCS campaign. They all look good. Oh, the bar is just so moody and dank. Smoke wafts through the command center from like a burnout cigarette. You, when you're in the shop, you hear sounds of clanging metals. Forever Entertainment also added a lot of neat particle effects that add a level of immersion to these places. On Forever Entertainment's tw- uh, Twitter page, 
they retweeted, this was months ago, but they retweeted someone posting comparisons of the Super Famicom original and the remake. And the Super Famicom original has its charm here, but it's night and day. Like the bar looks so great. Same with the command center. They have, they just have so much personality to them. Now, PMC, I have a game. We haven't played a game in fucking years. So PMC is putting on some bar music in the background to set the mood. PMC has no idea, but I made a little game. He's competing really against himself here because I have all the answers. Um, and I'm sure he's very curious. So it's, the, the bar music is appropriate here. We're talking about the bar. The game involves the bar. The bars all have interesting names. PMC, I'm, I have six names for you. I need you to tell me if it's a, if it's a made-up bar or if it's a bar that exists on Huffman Island. <laughs> And bonus points, I guess. I'll keep track. So if you get one right, you get one point. I'll give you another point if you can tell me the city uh, where the bar is located, which will be very difficult. I'll start out. Well, I'm not going to tell you if it's easy or not. The Patriot. All right, Patriot. Patriot is a bar in Freedom City. Not Freedom City, but you're correct. You have one point. Okay. There's a plus one here. Um, A board. It's in the UCS campaign. I think it's the... The City by the Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eagle's Claw. No. Correct. Can't be a pattern to this now. You're going to be guessing too much. Now you're reading into the, how I'm delivering the questions. You're doing better than I thought, too. Liberation. No. Fuck you. <sighs> Hold on. Now I'm going to try to throw them off. Absolute. No. Oh, gotcha. Ugh. <laughs> Absolute is the name of the bar in Belchka. Okay. Okay. How about Dino's? No. Yeah. Yeah, I, this too made up, but I like the name Dino's for a bar. <laughs> and I guess my last one is Eagle's Claw. You already did that. Did I do Eagle's Claw? Yeah. I can't do this next one because you'll know it now. How about Waterfall? Yes. No. Ugh. Waterfall is in Solit. Wait, it is a bar. Yes, it's a bar. Oh, Did it you is say a it's a bar? I said yes. Oh, fuck. See, I'm, it's been a long day, folks. Okay. So PMC now right. has four points. All right, I'll L- take that. Last question. I'm going to okay. repeat myself here. Tiger's Eye. Yes. Yes, you're correct. Okay. Ray Rock. All right, so five points. A respectable five points. Yeah, I'll take it. I think the best name, the bar name was Neo Bliss, which is the name of the bar in Freedom City. Neo Bliss is a very good bar name. There, um, there wasn't as many patterns to the naming conventions as I thought there would have been when I first came up with the idea for the game. Now, to be fair, the, the aesthetic and vibes of the bar don't change based on location. All the backgrounds look the same based on if you're in a bar, in the shop, in the arena. But again, they all look pretty cool. I was waxing rhapsodic about the bars there for a lot, for a while, but I will say this. And this is a guess to the game's discredit. I'm curious where you fall on this, PMC. I don't think the Amano character portraits fare quite as well in the remake. I think they're fine. Like, obviously, he didn't work on the remake. And to be fair, it's not like he created the sprite work in the Super Famicom game. He did the concept art. He did the character designs. And then Square Enix pixel, I guess Squaresoft pixel artist um, actually created it in-game. I think the characters look like Amano designs. But I feel like the new profile pictures, they definitely feel stiffer, and they lack his ethereal flair, which you could say about the original too. They kind of have these AI art vibes as if an algorithm were aping his style. Have you ever gone back to play a Super Famicom game and added those ass-ugly filters to it? 
that makes everyone look like they're melting or plastic or like sweating, like sweating. I haven't done it, like but I've, I've heard about it. I've heard about it. Yeah, because everything looks a little washed out. And it, it's not to that degree in the remake, but it could be better. I'll say that. How do you fall on this, PMC? He, I think Amana's character portraits in games always kind of stick out like a sore thumb. Right, is, is this when you bring up Cartaya? This is exactly when I bring up that game because they they just don't... I need them to, to, to blend in a little better. And here, I, like, I certainly agree with you that there is... There, it does feel like some kind of uh, filter or something were applied to the images in an effort probably to do two things, right? One of those things is just create an image that is sufficient resolution for modern video games, right? Because if you if you tried to copy the image pixel for pixel, it would look like like garbage because it was originally you know a tiny little baby screen. And then the other part of it too is I, I think they're doing some stylistic, uh, you know, flattening in terms of getting it to fit with things like the static backgrounds or, or other elements. I like it because I feel like it actually looks like it belongs in the game more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, of course, I am you know, wary of the extent to which it, it is like just sort of a. a, a tasteless application of a filter but i'm not really a graphic artist so i get to live in in uh, you know in ignorant bliss who do you think is the most amano ass character based on designs i mean it's probably natalie just because she's got like the terror hair she does have the terror hair i was thinking driscoll's my number one but natalie was my number two driscoll is such a amano character so we talked a lot about the graphics. Now we're going to move on to kind of like what will serve as the foundation for our front mission retrospectives going forward. We're going to talk about the lore, baby. The geopolitics of the Front Mission universe are definitely different from ours in 2023, but maybe not too different. In our 2023, I guess you could argue that there are three superpowers with quotes around superpowers. You have the United States, Russia, and China. And their national and imperialistic ambitions tend to dictate global politics. To be fair, this is a very generalized commentary. There are blocks of allied nations with shared interests like the European Union, but I feel like they don't wield quite the same influence on the world stage. In front mission, however, neighboring countries have politically and diplomatically joined together or have been subjugated to form super nations. There are five such powers in the world of front mission. I have a map in front of PMC here, but it'll be fun. This is another game I could have played without a map just see, to see if PMC could name all five super nations. Do you know what game this map is from? Because the date is 2102, which is a little further in the future, I think, from Good Front question. Mission 1. I think this is pulled from... This might be a 5 map? Maybe? It might be a 5 map. It's the yeah. only map I could find online. Yeah. Now, we're not going to review all of these players. Some of these political powers are going to come up in future games, and I'm very interested to learn more about the ideologies, if they have any, of these respected um, super nations, but we only need to talk about three for the first game. So the first one, everyone's favorite, 
The Oceania Cooperative Union, aka the OCU, it's a supernation made up of Australia, Australia, excuse me, shoutouts to Lao, New Zealand, Korea, Japan, and a number of countries in South Asia and some Pacific Islands. Now, unsurprisingly, consider the, considering the game's Japanese origins, the original campaign is told from the OCU perspective. How would it? Are you a flag guy, PMC? You're probably not a flag. I'm not a flag guy either. No. Flag, flag screen nas- scream nationalism. But yeah, I, I can't say I'm particularly interested. <laughs> but do you uh, do you think this is a good design, the uh, OCU flag? I think it's serviceable. I think it's fine. It's very idiosyncratic. It's got a big O. You yeah. know that. I guess that counts for something. Now, <laughs> the next flag really screams America. It's the United States of the New Continent, often shortened to UCS. Which is it's often it's also referred to as USN in some English versions, though I think UCS I guess is the canon version now. Yeah, UCS I think is now canon. I think USN was mostly Front Mission Three, I, I think believe. So. There are some other weird spelling differentiations between yeah. those. So, the in Front Mission lore, the OCU formed, and then America was basically like fuck, and then they formed the. Uh, excuse me, then they formed the UCS. It was resp- uh, formed in response to the Oceania Cooperative Union. Basically, it's made up of North America and South America. Now, we learn in the UC- UCS campaign, originally included in the Front Mission First remake on PlayStation 2003, that all is not well in the Supernation. The first mission has you putting down a group of guerrilla fighters in Venezuela who are rebelling against the hegemony of the UCS. When I got to that, I was like, can I please exist in this space a little longer? I, I do not really want to go back to Huffman. I want to, I want to stay here, please and thank you. Now also, I'm just predicting here, I don't know how deep the games get into the political imbalances that exist within these power structures. I'm very curious if like the global south exists in this universe. Like I, I can predict that there are stark economic and infrastructural differences between north and south america i assume that north america is like the power base like the ruling class probably exist probably exist in like washington dc or somewhere in north america and i want to learn more about that so hopefully future games will shed a light i i I worry that future games are going to be like hyper fixated on huffman island because i know five refers back i know all the games refer back to it but i know five in particular um takes place partly on Huffman Island. I believe another one of the main mainline games does as well. And finally, we have the Republic of Zaftra, um, which is a sh- distorted version of a Russian word, which I'm not going to pronounce here, but it means tomorrow. It's basically a supernation consisting of you got Russia and the former Eastern Bloc countries. So according to the wiki, and who knows, it might be wrong, it might be the Front Mission Zero guy fucking things up for us, but... The Soviet Union was a thing in Front Mission, and it seemed like the USSR dissolved in 91, like with us. As you learn at the end of the UCS campaign, Zaftra has fallen from grace. Like, it no longer wields the same power on the world stage that it once did. I'm curious if that's meant to mirror Russia's struggles in the 90s after the fall of the USSR, or if there is a fictional in-universe explanation. But whatever the case, it's crucial to the plot of the first Front Mission. Like you might, I don't recommend taking notes as you're listening to this, but if you plan on playing Front Mission first, consider this. Zaftra is important, 
and they have had a fall from grace, and I'll leave it at that. I will say, the parallels to Russia in our 21st century are a little chilling. I'm very curious how Left Alive holds up or is in conversation with events currently unfolding in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, whenever we get there, and it's going to be a while, hopefully there is peace in Ukraine by that time, uh, but certainly it will color our reading of that text, which of course covers, I believe, a Zafter invasion of a small country in Eastern Europe. Interesting. I mean, also... You don't need to be an astute observer of politics to recognize Russia's imperialistic ambitions. This is coming from an American who often recognizes the United States' imperialistic ambitions. Hoffman Island's just so cool as a location. Like just this island sitting in the South Pacific. I, I want to I want to know so much about the island. PMC absolutely like shotgunned an idea I had <laughs> later on uh, with it. Yeah. I should have picked up on it, but I am very I am curious about Hoffman. Even though I think too much, occasionally too much interest is focused on the island, too much attention is given to the island. Um, but I think it's a really quaint setting for a location. Now, like with the Cold War, political tensions between the superpowers worsened along physical borders. I'm thinking of physical borders like the border that existed and exists in Korea and Vietnam. You have an island in the South, South Pacific, and it had the misfortune of becoming a battlefield between these two superpowers. Now, Huffman Island was settled by both the OCU and the UCS, and both powers wanted the land for its rich mineral deposits. Now, interestingly, in an interview, and this interview was conducted in the mid-90s when the game originally came out, Sakaguchi said, quote, no one was trying to shine a light on current events. Certain geopolitical relationships were used for inspiration, though, which is such a... Japanese PR thing to say. It's a PR thing to say in general, but I feel like when I'm reading interviews from creatives behind anime productions and video game productions, they're very hesitant to rock the boat, so to speak, with a distinct political commentary. But PMC, it's the mid-90s, Front Mission comes out. What geopolitical relationships or historical events do you think inspired Huffman? So I think there's a few things going on. I think the emphasis on... One of the things that characters mention frequently throughout Front Mission is that Huffman Island accounts for the only overland border between the OCU and the UCS, which certainly sounds like they're trying to invoke what I think is the largest and most longstanding territorial dispute, which is Korea. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a pretty straightforward one there where you have you know the influence from China versus you know the influence from the United States uh, among other players. Plus there's the proximity to Japan as well. Sometimes the United States' relationship with North Korea in particular is a bit more abstract, but there is a proximity to Japan which is different than ours. And of course, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, there are a lot of other island disputes. Korea is the biggest one. You can point to any sort of proxy war. Again, being the overland border, I think, suggests any one of a number of late 20th century proxy wars. The U.S., you know, in its ambitions, is involved in many such things as Korea, Vietnam, conflicts in Central and South America. Uh, we could also talk about other... Imper- you know, U.S. isn't the only imperial game in town. We could talk about the Falkland Islands is, is another excellent one. We could talk about China's imperial ambitions and the transfer of Hong Kong or Taiwan. Uh, if there's one I might point out that's kind of particularly fun... It would be that Japan has a few island disputes. Mm. 
in in particular, I would point to maybe the Kuril Islands. Do you know where those are, Stephen? I do not know. That is the string of islands that sits between the northern tip of Japan and the uh, whatever that peninsula is that's coming down from the very eastern part of Russia. Mm. Uh, so there's a string of islands there, and uh, you know, since World War II, I think at the end of World War II, there was sort of a uh, settled people were settled of mind about who which who had what islands, and then I think at some point here in the seventies or eighties, China was like actually no. And this isn't to say <laughs> that that China was necessarily engaged in duplicitous behavior because you know maybe the agreement at the or no Russia said no I think and but of course like Russia's changed hands China, you know China's leadership has changed Japan's leadership has probably changed. Uh, so, you know, there could be you know, legitimate grievances here. I'm not going to attempt to say who is in the right or wrong, but just to sort of point out that I think there's a lot of uh, examples in terms of overland borders, in terms of volcanic islands, you know, any one, any one of these things could have served as fodder. Yeah, I think those are all really good examples. I'm reminded of Pat Labor, too, and the historical resonance of the of japan sending peace un peacekeepers into cambodia um that was like politically swirling in the osmosis around everyone there of course is cuba which i'm sure partly inspired the creation of huffman like the political dimensions that existed on that exist and existed on the island during the cold war and also like the creation of the eu in 1993 and the rise of this superpower and the fall of other superpowers like the ussr at the beginning of the decade i'm sure that all contributed to the plot of front mission which might make the plot of front mission sound a little bit more nuanced than it actually is um, not to say that there's not meat on those bones but it's a little more basic than you might expect given the reputation of the series I will say that we should probably file away the Cambodia thing. I'm sure we will be revisiting that in Front Mission Two. I'm so excited for Front Mission Two. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rewatch the fuck out of Pat Labor Two before <laughs> I play Front uh, Front Mission Two. So obviously they're both on the island. Tensions are running hot, and eventually they boiled over in 2070 when war broke out. This is referred to as the first Huffman conflict. Now keep in mind this all happens before the events of the game. So after two years of fighting, peace was finally declared after the intervention of Zaftra and a PMO. Not, not to be confused with PMC. PMO stands for Peace Mediating Pe- Organization. Yep. It's it's coin. It's a front mission term. So I typed it in Google, and the first thing that popped up was front mission, not like the UN's website. The Huffman Treaty. So they settled it with the treaty. It dictated that the Mail River M A I L which roughly runs through the middle of the island, serve as the demarcation line between both nations. The OCU occupies the left side of the island, the UCS the right. Now, speaking of, of wars, as we often do on Giant Robot FM, I love abbre- stupid abbreviations and slang for opposing sides, like in Clone Wars when they call the droids clankers, or in Gundam 0079 when they call... Zeon soldier Zeeks or Fed Federation soldiers Fetties. Uh, it's it's the most basic ass world building, but I'm there for it every time. It gives the conflict a very lived in quality. I feel like Front Mission does does deliver on this front. I tried keeping a running list, and the list is only two. There's only two names on there. Like OCU slang for the UCS soldiers is statesmen, 
and the UCS soldiers refer to as the, the OCU soldiers as Aussies. There might have been one more, but I couldn't regarding the UCS, but I couldn't remember it or find it in any of the snapshots I took on Switch. Now, you've all read your history books in high school. You all know that the first Huffman conflict ended in 2072. An uneasy peace reigned on the island for nearly 20 years until 2090 when an OCU captain named Royd Clive was assigned to investigate a munitions plant in the Larkus district located on UCS territory. This would later be referred to as, creatively, the Larkus incident and serves as the opening of the game. So, PMC, why don't you tell me what goes down? Yeah, so Royd ends up going with his unit including Ryuji and Karen to do some covert reconnaissance on this factory that is, that is deep in, in UCS territory. Uh, and now of course what en- ends up happening is that they are ambushed. Karen goes MIA and, and uh, you know, and, and then a uh, Royd and Ryuji escape and they kind of scatter to the wind. They leave the army and the incident itself ends up serving as the, the thing that starts the war. Of course, uh, you know, the UCS says, hey, what are you doing here? OCU says, no, this is just a pretext to justify war. Uh, Some things that are happening behind the scenes, of course, is that it's essentially, you know, a maneuver to, in fact, create the war that, you know, that the uh, that the that the real the true bad guys need a supply of veteran soldiers. And the only way to do that is a war. And in particular, Karen ends up being one of those uh, one of those people that is ground up by the war machine, so to speak. That's a good summary. I just thought of a dynamite idea for a tweet. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> workshop it with you right now. Take I'm, I'm thinking I don't have like hands-on experience with this test because I don't teach this course, but think of an AP history test, like an essay prompt that instead of involving I don't know Cuba in the 1960s, it involves the Huffman Islands, like altering that document to reflect front mission. I think I think there's potential there. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm workshopping in my head now. I'm frantically typing in AP Euro or AP Modern U.S. History prompts. See what comes up. Now, this, this Larkus incident is a big deal in the mythos and lore of front mission. It kind of dictates a lot about this first game. So it's war again. The OCU, to save face, pins the blame on Royd's squad and discharges them from the military. I imagine a lot, most of this happens off screen, as do many of the events in Front Mission, but I imagine Roy's drinking a lot at this time. He's definitely fighting in the arena until Guri Olsen, leader of a mercenary group called the Canyon Crows, recruits him. Olsen basically looks like Gunbuster's coach if he was aged up 20 or 30 years. I am still mourning the loss, the imaginary loss of the naming schemes of the Front Mission translation patch. Car- I, I want to be carrying crows instead of carrying crow, um, but never forget what they took from you. That's that's such a dynamite name. I, I, that one doesn't bother me as much as just Lloyd. <laughs> I, I do feel it probably should be Lloyd. I can't instead just, of Roy. I, I just think of Roy's. Yeah. And, my, and my Roy was super powerful by the end of the mm-hmm. game, just mowing down suckers and their wanzers. So I think of like a really jacked Roy. I'm sure he, he's pretty svelte. He's pretty muscular anyway. In the beginning, though, the OC, it's, things are not going well for the OCU. The UCS makes advances on several fronts. They launch the first mass aerial Vonzer drop, which it, it's cool in-game. It's not like there's a, a great cinematic to go along with it, but there are some cool like pictures to go along with it, and I imagine it rules. 
from a video game player standpoint, not for the people who live on Huffman Island. But the UCS captures Freedom City, one of, if not the largest city on the island. Desperate, the OCU High Command has enlisted mercenary groups like the Crows to stem the tide and help launch a counteroffensive. I think narratively it's a very smart choice, an obvious choice, but a smart choice to have Roy be part of a mercenary unit, which makes him on a narrative level part of and not a part of the military hierarchy, which I think provides the necessary distance to critique these power structures that are manipulating and abusing ordinary soldiers. This isn't an unusual trope in military fiction. It's very it's a very common framing device. Hell, we saw it in the original Gundam with the white base, which, if you remember, the, at least in the first stretch of the show, the white base is cut off from the Federation, which I think the writer is used to develop a similar critique. Now, as you'd expect, because we're dealing with a mercenary group here, the Canyon Crows are an assorted group of misfits. PMC, any standouts for you in the Crows? I think the real standouts for me are the characters that are that are with you for the longest time and that have no special destiny, which is to say JJ and Keith. Uh, JJ is our sole representative of the of the African supernation in the game, uh, which he doesn't talk about much except you know briefly at the ending. Keith strikes me as a real big boss outer heaven soldier that just sort of yes. exists on the battlefield. He kind of has like, almost looks a little bit like Guile, uh, but he doesn't really seem to have any sort of existence outside of being on the battlefield. Uh, those two by nature of being with you the longest, they have the most opportunity for that way of strategy game, uh, you know, narrative generation that will happen on its own when a character surprisingly survives something. Mm-hmm. They just have more opportunities to do that. They have more opportunities to endear themselves to you in that manner. So I think they're kind of the true mercenaries, and I would contrast them with the you know the the sort of wet wet blankets that are uh, Ryuji and Natalie, who are largely hampered by the fact that they have details that they're holding back on. You know, that because because they have to serve the plot twist towards the end of the game, Ryuji being related to Sakata Industries and Natalie being related to the general, you, they, they kind of hold off on those and I think it hamstrings them a little bit. Natalie suffers from this less just because she gets to express some jealousy over Royd's continued search for Karen, but it definitely hurts both of them. There also there are also seeker characters in the game. I think you plan to recruit all of them, right? I did recruit all of them. Yes. How many are there total? I think I got most of them. It's like five or six okay. uh, that you get from from doing certain scenarios. I agree with your assessment, though. I will say my JJ and my and my Natalie were very overpowered by the end of the game. <laughs> like they were just mowing down everyone. Who's like the the mom? Oh, Molly. Molly, yeah. I think so, you know, if you want to get into talking about how the the campaign proceeds, a thing that is interesting to me about this in terms of narrative progression is just how much of a standard strategy RPG this is, because the overarching plot really is very simple, doesn't have much meat on the bones, just kind of progresses like the war progresses, right? And you're winning battles. So the war progresses in your favor, like to me, the real moment to moment of the plot is your standard strategy RPG exercise of you go into a new scenario. Somebody is doing something, you know, Frederick <laughs> is getting a scoop. 
Molly is defending her bombed out home. Something's going on. Yeah, take a shot every time Frederick says scoop. He's covered wars, you know. <laughs> and you end up intervening somehow, usually in a way that means that either then or later, that character joins your party. That, that's a pretty common thing. That's in Tactics Ogre. That's in Fire Emblem. That's And to it, the game's detriment, or I guess to the genre's detriment, they never really follow up the stories on any of these side characters who join you for... Uh, they they join you in that mission, but you never really follow up on their stories. Yeah, like the only person who really gets there's only two characters that really have follow up. Molly has the second sequence where she you know she tricks Keith and JJ into doing something stupid, yeah, and then she kind of backs off after that. And then uh, you know Mehua finds her brother, which is a useful foil for what happens to Royd and Karen, but that's kind of the end of it. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping future Front Mission games will develop its side characters better. Based on my mileage and memory of Front Mission 3, I think that might be the case, but still a low bar to clear. The fun thing about Front Mission is these characters, these side characters, appear in unexpected places the further you get in the series. So I'm looking forward to that. It's the Star Wars effect. It's the Glub Shido thing. Like, oh, look who just showed up. Um, except, <laughs> unlike uh, the weird dude from that last Star Wars movie, they, they tend to like lack the same stage presence they're not little weird little freaks um when they show up again but still it has that same effect so i'm looking forward to um when some of these other characters show up i have to ask now does maria show up again in any of the games based on her exit maria maria is a side character in from mission four okay gotcha (laughs) she has like the strangest outfit on at the end of that game it's hysterical so we're still talking about the first campaign now. Like the first half of the first campaign proceeds as you expect. You push back the UCS offensive, retake Freedom City, and advance into enemy territory. And the plot, like PMC mentioned, what little there is, goes very hard on the war is hell angle. I don't think there are really any fresh recruits in the Canyon Crows. I mean, you have Frederick, but he's covered wars, I'm sure. Most of them have seen their fair share of combat. Even still, if they had any idealism by the st- at the start of the campaign, it's certainly shot by the end. Midway through the game, the UCS, humbled and hobbled, sues for peace. Both sides come together and form the Peace Mediation Organization. As we pointed out earlier, that's otherwise known as the PMO, to oversee the peace process, which basically means that soldiers from both sides serve in this organization. At this point, the focus shifts from enemy soldiers to the military-industrial complex and the companies who are profiting from this war. This is when I really wanted the game to turn into a Kojima game. It doesn't, but you see like the, the, glimmering, the glimmerings of a more substantial critique here. There's a company called Cicada Industries. It's up to a lot of shady shit, as you'll learn the further you get into the game. And there's a paramilitary terrorist organization. I'm really generously to say that they're a paramilitary organization. They're called the Spirit of Huffman, and they want to expose this company and basically put an end to their dealings. So as a PMO representative, you start off fighting the Spirit of Huffman, but of course you then join forces with them once you know what they're fighting for and what they're fighting against. And then you eventually learn that Cicada Industries is being used by a mysterious organization for their own goals. So we're nearing the end of the first campaign here. PMC, why don't you talk about the final twist? Like, who was the mastermind behind the second Huffman conflict? Like, the Larkus incident was not accidental. Yeah, so as I, I think I alluded to a little bit earlier, but there is a, a scientific apparatus called the Nirvana Institute 
that is oper- operating in cooperation with some folks in in the UCS military, and they are really you know they're working with Sakata Industries, and really Sakata Industries is working at the behest of uh, the Republic of Zaftra and Driscoll. And so what you had there was a situation where Zaftra is desperate to develop some kind of powerful weapon to sell. They discover that, you know, some people cross ethical boundaries, say, hey, we can make more powerful weapons if we just get the raw biological materials of veteran soldiers. No, thank you. And so, you know, and so what happens there is that you have a, a union between Driscoll and operating under the, you know, the sort of a umbrella of the Nirvana Institute working with the, you know, some higher ups in the UCS and they are together able to main. And also I should mention that, um, as I think, uh, Olson is in on the conspiracy as well. Yeah. You know, the cannon crows are all meant to be subjects for this as well. They are, you know, they are very much the intention is to deliver them as materials for the creation of the B devices and S devices, uh, that would be these powerful weapons that Zafter would then be able to use and sell. That's a good summation of it. Um, the, the There's a really solid arc to the first campaign. It reminds me in the barest of outlines of UC Gundam, because you have UC Gundam, which does the, the both sides angle, Zeon and Federation, showing how ordinary soldiers are manipulated by power structures. And then like by the time you get to Zeta, you start learning about Anaheim, and how Anaheim is producing all these mechs for profit for these, and it's they're only being sustained economically and financially by wars. And you could kind of draw a parallel to the trajectory of the campaign in Front Mission, but it's nowhere near as nuanced. But there is something there, and I'm really hoping future games deliver on that. I know Front Mission Three gets very anime, but my hopes are pinned on Front Mission Two and Front Mission Five. Now, I guess one of my biggest issues with the narrative of Front Mission First, and I think this applies to both campaigns, but it's more noticeable in the OCU playthrough, is just how little story there is. The characters are given very little room to breathe or develop. The dialogue exchanges that occur between missions are very short, which if you want to get to the action is cool. It's like a Fire Emblem game. The story doesn't really matter. They're over in a few minutes, and they really fail to capitalize on the interesting world building that is going on around this whole game. It's very bare bones. For example, PMC mentioned the the final plot twist. Like Natalie, Roy's number two in the Canyon Crows, admits that she knew Olsen was grooming the squad to be turned into bioweapons. I feel like there's no real reckoning with that. It's just a few lines of dialogue before all the characters move on, which is really wild when you think about it. Like if, if PMC started this podcast to turn me into a biological weapon and he admits that and we go and I go, well, we're still recording next week, right? I and mean, that's like the level of absurdity that's happening in the game. Yeah, I, I think the game sort of relies upon the forward movement as like the urgency that that carries you forward which is to say when natalie is saying that that it's in the context of it we have to fight olsen we have to fight driscoll and you can argue that roid personally has a very driscoll centric vendetta understandably true uh so that he's willing to overlook it but yeah you do kind of wish someone else would speak up about it Royd is very, Royd has the energy of a low-tier Code Geass episode, but sometimes she's just screaming. He's very angsty at times. 
the characterization is minimal across the board, but it is very, I hate to use this term, but it's, it feels very of its time. If I was a ship hoster online, I would say it feels very quote-unquote anime, which is a very problematic term because, yeah, of course it's like an anime, you doofus. Um, but nonetheless, you kind of get what I'm throwing down there. I, the, U, the UCS campaign, though, which Forever Entertainment included in the first remake, keep in mind it originally came out in 2003, which means it wasn't in the Wonderswan port. The second campaign stars Kevin Greenfield, who starts the game as a member of the Black Hounds until he's kicked out for disobeying orders. And then Driscoll then recruits him for the Nirvana Institute, which is how he ends up on Huffman. Amano did a bunch of new art for the PlayStation game. Kevin, it looks, Amano Kevin looks like such a fucking badass compared to Kevin Greenfield in the game. He is such a dork. But in the Amano drawing, he looks, gets so, he looks sultry. Kind of reminds me of, like, he has some, he's seen some shit. He's kind of like Cassian Andor. He has that, that weathered feel about him. So, PMC, the million dollar question here from a story perspective, do you have a, Keep in mind, from a story perspective. From a story perspective, yes. Do you have a preference for either the OCU or UCS campaign? I think ultimately, and I, this could change. Am I going to flip time. the table here? With time, this could change. I think I'm going to flip the table here. But the vibes in the OCU campaign are just much better. They are, well, elaborate. So the fact that there is no resolution, I mean, there, there is sort of a resolution in that you find the biochip, but you do not actually ever reunite with Karen. True. It's sort of a thread that pulls you along, and instead this finale ends up in this dark place of you know a factory that shouldn't exist, fighting a terrible weapon. Uh, the ending sequence uh, with like the sort of the silhouettes and everyone departing feels very somber. Uh, the cutscenes that there are in this game, you know, are often Royd reminiscing mm-hmm. about being with Karen in a quiet place in nature or on a patrol on the bridge. I could use maybe those scenes are good. They're good. I could there use just like more three or more hours of them. There's two, I think two flashbacks and they're very, very short. Yeah. So they're very short, uh, but I think they are good uh, and they're good in a way that the, the UCS campaign isn't the UCS campaign is like an actual story with actual dialogue between missions. Yeah, that's why I like it more. <laughs> the problem is, is that all the UCS characters suck. They do, so they're less <laughs> distinct. They, that, I mean, Matt is a fat joke. True. Johnny is Black Soldier Man. Maria is interesting, but she's got she's got like MCU disease, which is just that she's a reference to another thing, which is a Front Mission 4 character. True. Uh, it, you know, like some of the later characters that show up are a little more interesting. I do think it's cool that we get one of the Hell's Walls survivors. Totally. Geta is good. Gina is probably the best UCS campaign character. Hallie and Howard are like good supporting soldiers in a similar manner to JJ and Keith. Mm-hmm. But, like, the fact that your primary characters are just, like, so, such a downer. Like, Kevin is such a one note, and he's very loud and, and like, voluminous with the one note. But it's really just one note. <sighs> he's such a white piece of bread. Yeah, he really is. Now, I made an offhand comment on our stream last month that the use OCU campaign feels more like an SNES RPG from Square of the Era especially compared with Kevin's story, which I think tracks. This isn't a criticism or a piece of praise. I'm just, it feels like a Squaresoft game from 1995. Like, and to, and this worked for PMC. Like, you have a motley crew of heroes. 
They have eccentric personalities and designs. They join together to defeat evil. The, the, the evil they defeat is less abstracted than Zero Miss from Final Fantasy IV, but definitely feels very Final Boss JRPG. The villain references becoming a god at several points. It's definitely more melodramatic. I mentioned this before, but Royd's energy is amped up to the nth degree. Driscoll's plan and, quote, final form feels very JRPG villain. You might say Kefka-esque. Has that name ever been used before? Had to be. It's has Someone's to had to have made that joke, yeah. 100%. And then Driscoll even has his own final boss lair on an island. Um, again, none of this is bad in isolation. I, I am more amenable to the grounded story featured in Kevin's campaign because I'm interested in a lot of the world building. But PMC is correct. Character-wise, there's really a lot less to grapple with. The characters are all traditional soldiers. I feel like you get a better sense of the military dimensions of this conflict. And more time is paid out, paid to fleshing out the characters, even though the characters are one or more one note. There's just more dialogue. There's, even though there might not be that much to chew on, it's it's interesting. This not interesting, but it's good to sit with these characters um, during like downtime in between missions. Um, there's a lot more dialogue, which helps the story, I think. But the cast suffers as a result. But I think that it, and this is a very subjective take but i feel like it stays true to the premise of front mission more but bear in mind the premise of front mission is what you make of it so what you bring to the table might be different than what i bring to the table now okay so i have a few notes here like some things i want future games to address i totally forgot this plot point but i said i want i was very curious if there are indigenous communities on huffman before the ocu and ucs colonized the island but Sakaguchi and friends predicted this and had a little note at the beginning of the game. PMC, why don't you illuminate dumbass me? Yeah, so the issue with Huffman Island is that it's one of those scenarios where the world-altering event of the formation of Huffman Island only occurs after the release of Front Mission, the video game, which is to say the island was formed by volcanic activity in 1995 and then only later, I think, becomes like property of the United Nations and then it becomes a source of dispute. And, you know, which is why later on in the 21st century, you have both OCU and the UCS hanging out there. Yeah, time really sped up quickly there. Cuba didn't form in a span of a century. I'll say that. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I'm, I'm kind of surprised, given especially how much, like, Karen and Royd are interested in the ecology of the island or the spirit of Huffman would presumably be interested in the ecology of the island. I mean, I, obviously, there is a mechanism by which, you know, animals and you know flora and fauna deposit themselves on islands in the pacific that is i'm sure there is all sorts of research and literature on that i'm curious that it kind of forms so quickly maybe some of that was helped along by humans uh i don't know if we'll get that but i mean the good news right as we've said before is that uh from mission two will probably have us fed on this front soon enough so i'll scratch off ingenuity and i'll add ecology so I'm, I am curious about the ecology of, of Huffman Island, and I'm curious about how characters and activists feel about the degradation of the environment that must be taking place on the island. I think that's an interesting angle to approach it. Front Mission is very fixated on Huffman, kind of like how UC Gundam is fixated on the one-year war. So future games and future media keep coming back to Huffman Island. So whenever I 
approach those future works, I want them to take a unique angle when it comes to representing conflict in this location. Because I think there's a lot lot to potentially mine from like one location. Um, there's a lot of culture that you could examine that I hope future games do, though I doubt they'll actually address it in a meaningful way. I also want, and this I know this is definitely, we're definitely going to get this, I want a greater and more nuanced examination of geopolitics. Like what else is going on in the world? I'm very curious what's going on in Europe and in Africa. There's definitely more to front mission than the OCU and UCS binary. I also want ideology. We don't really know what these countries or these super nations stand for, which could be compelling commentary. Like maybe they're standing only for capitalism and that they could work with that. You have to go a little farther. Um, I think front mission two though is going to deliver a bit more on that. So without further ado, let's finally talk about how Front Mission plays. As I'm sure all our listeners know, Front Mission is a strategy RPG series. It's had over the two decades of its existence, more than two decades, several deviations. 2D side-scrollers, 3D action games, online multiplayer games, even a foray into stealth action. But at its core, Front Front Mission is all about the tactics. Keep in mind, though, Front Mission originally came out in 1995. And Forever Entertainment, as they do with most of their remakes, takes pains to recreate that original game as authentically as possible, which also applies to Front Mission First Remake, which means it plays like a Super Famicom-era strategy RPG. Like, sure, Forever included most of the additions and touch-ups that were present in the PlayStation and DS versions, but when it comes to versatility, uh, like when it comes to versatility in the battlefield, your options are still very limited, especially in comparison to something like Fire Emblem Engage or Tactics Ogre Reborn. Front Mission seems very quaint by comparison because by comparison, it is very quaint. PMC, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think Front Mission is clearly a a game that is begging for you know further iteration and further development, which does happen. In other video games, it definitely it definitely needs more variability in maps. I would really like if weather played a factor, or if terrain were actually an important thing to consider. Yeah, I mean the trade offs feel limited or absent. The builds are not really balanced. There's a pretty clear linear succession. Uh, you know, the end game seems unfocused. Like you you almost wonder if there you could even arrive at a different end game when it comes to how you play it. Yeah, exactly. I do think the game holds up better in comparison when you're talking about customization, because this is a mech game after all, which means legally you have to have a garage and you have to be able to mix and match your parts. So when you get into the garage for the first time, you'll realize that each of your characters has four different stats that you can min-max. Really, it's max or choose not to max. You got melee, you got short, long, and dodge. And I feel like pilots come in two variations. Uh, at the beginning of the game, you'll have characters who are a blank slate. Um, they they do not have any standout characteristics, so you can choose to maximize or prioritize melee, short, long, and dodge, however you'd like. Later in the game, there are some characters you get who have standout characteristics, and you could go against the grain and pump up another 
element or you could just keep going with like melee for example um so that's how stat distribution falls one of those choices like here comes my first complaint the four different vonzer types i'll put quotes around types really aren't equal on the battlefield pmc you pointed this out to me when i first started front mission and i think you're completely correct i hope this isn't a controversial take maybe front mission fans will disagree but short range Vonzers are far and away the best option, especially when you start getting specials. A machine gun plus speed will devastate any opponent on the battlefield. Not to say that other types don't have their uses. I think the melee option to stun is very handy, and also the ability to pick off Vonzers from a distance is cool and occasionally handy, but there's less incentive to diversify your party. I will say dodge is pretty worthless. Don't put your money in dodge. Well, here's the thing, though. This is a game where you get experience by doing, right? True. This is a game where you get short XP when you attack short. You get long when you use missiles. You get melee when you use melee. And so dodge is something that you have to get by getting attacked a lot, which is, you know, something if you're just mowing everything down with short, you know, you're going to be attacked less often. Uh, yeah, I mean, short is very dominant. Melee can go the distance, uh, but it needs often needs a little help to do so. You know, the, here's the thing with dodge is that like dodge, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about dodge in, in the, the last section of, of the podcast, but it is true that dodge doesn't have skills. There is a, there could be a universe in which you have a tank type class that I think was, I think whoever wanted dodge to be a, a stat probably had that in their brain yeah of course in the 90s i don't think there are like tanking is quite the thing you, you have the idea of the warrior who's a melee character who can use more durable but i don't think you have tanks in the way that you have like tanks now in like the era of like 20 years of mmos when you say tank people know what you're talking about yeah. uh, so i i think there it's definitely um it could have been more developed. And also a lot of those, uh, there's other trade-offs things as well. Like there are going to be gameplay mechanics in later front missions that will make the other options, which aren't quite expressed the same way, like more viable as an example, um, excess energy. Mm -hmm. So you, you equip less, you have more excess energy that can mean more melee damage. Okay. And so the melee build becomes more viable as a result. Um, so it's just, those kinds of imbalances, because you know, one of the other issues is that as much as you can customize, oftentimes there are parts that are just better. And so if the only difference is money and you can just get money from the arena, then the answer is you just get the parts that you want and it's always the best parts that you can get. Um, the only thing I would say is I, I, if I were to like make a save, boot up the fight to see what kind of arena I'm going to be, like what kind of level it's going to be, mm -hmm. and then load up my save and like tailor my units according to what I saw when I, when I booted up the mission, I would change, I could change leg parts. Mm. You, you can get a benefit from using hover legs in the desert or water and, you know, normal type legs on hills and uh, tires and treads on roads. Like you can get a movement advantage by doing that, but it is typically so little and the advantage to being able to, to scale vertically is usually still so great in any mission. I think the only exception I can think of is the, de is the desert ambush in the middle of the OCU campaign mm -hmm. where there are no hills <laughs> and it's all flat desert terrain. Um, 
Yeah, which is very much set up as a mission in which you get ambushed by hover units. But even there, they come to you and you kill them, and that's pretty much the end of it. Yeah, terrain doesn't really matter at all, which is unfortunate, because yeah. I, I, I really like that wrinkle in strategy RPGs. It makes for more compelling fights, I think. I could imagine a world in which dodge would be prioritized if the game was a little bit more like Fire Emblem. Like, if you really pump up the speed and agility of a character, they could basically, like, fend off an entire group of approaching soldiers by, like, like staying squat in an alley or something and just dodging all their attacks. Right, exactly. There was a choke point. You throw your, your tank or dodge master in there. And then you have a bunch of long-range units that can just pelt the units that are coming to attack your tank. But, you know, this is a game of decisive combat. You can just run them over with short range. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a get-good guy here. I'm not in, in reality. But the front, the difficulty of front mission, we'll talk about this later, really peters out after the first. after Actually, after freedom in both campaigns. And it's, it's a real clear shot to the end. Your characters get overpowered real quick. Which brings me to specials. There are too few of them, and there's no clear progression. They just never tell you, dog. They just don't, you don't know. And actually, it takes a while in the first campaign to get them. I actually was going to DM you and going, am I playing the game wrong? I have no specials yet. But lo and behold, I find Royd finally got his first special. And then basically, it was devastation on the battlefield. I know that once you boost your stats to specific levels, the game gives you the option to acquire a special. At least I think that math is present. Yes, I, I once you get that. your experience level in a particular stat up to a certain prereq, once at, whenever you level up, you have a chance to get a relevant skill. But that's never told to the player, which no. is wild. And it makes it feel random, even though, as PMC just pointed out, it's not. I would, in future games, I would really love a skill tree or something. Like, Suchita, one of the major creatives behind Front Mission, would later work on Final Fantasy X. He didn't invent the spear grid, but he worked on a lot of the gameplay systems, particularly the battle system. Maybe Front Mission 5 features something more akin to like a spear gr- sphere grid, but from X, probably doesn't, but it would be dope if it did. That's the kind of customization I want to see in future Front Mission games, which I know based on having played Front Mission 3, we get some of that going forward. And PMC, my next point, PMC alluded to earlier, it's diversification. The, I feel like the game really fails to incentivize different Vonzer makeups. There are, to the game's credit, a whole bunch of options to customize your mechs. You can choose different legs. Legs are very important. Arms, bodies, backpacks, CPUs, and weapon loadouts. And that's all well and good. But there's usually a clear best item to equip, especially when it comes to the body and arms. So all your Vonzers end up looking the same. I wish the game systems actively encouraged more experimentation. You... If you're not really going to the arena, you'll run out of money quick, which means that your lack of money will dictate what your builds look like. So maybe your builds look more varied than my builds did, but most of my mechs ended up looking the same. I did. It wasn't just short-range fighters for me. In the OCU campaign, I had two melee um, Vonzer pilots, Mewa and the chunky guy. Uh, Kong? Yeah, Kong. And then I had two long-range missile dudes hans and paul paul yeah and they're they're fun to have on the battlefield too to uh, vary things up but it wasn't really necessary for any of the missions which is kind of a bummer the as we'll talk about i think the ucs campaign addresses this just a smidge but nowhere near as much as i would like 
Battles unfold as you'd expect. Like movement is grid based. Most weapons are short range with the exception of rocket launchers and bazookas. In the base campaign, maps aren't distinct. Like that's another major criticism of mine. And most mission objectives require you to simply destroy all the enemy mechs. In the UCS campaign, things are a bit different. Remember, it came out in 2003, which is eight years after the original game. The Front Mission series has changed a lot since then, and the same could be said of strategy RPGs. I feel like this campaign does take this into consideration. There are different mission types, like nothing earth-shattering, but in one or two missions, you have to stop enemy units before they can escape from the map, which um, makes things a little bit more tense. Your, Your party shrinks in size. I'm curious how you feel about this PMC, because I think this is a net positive. I like having a smaller party. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, that's. I think that's also classic front mission. I think in future games, your party is a lot smaller. It adds ba- tension on the battlefield. It's easier to manage. I think it actually encourages more strategy in the strategy RPG. I also feel like Kevin's story, gameplay-wise, prioritizes close quarters combat more. My favorite map in the game, it takes place... We Actually, I'm going to save this because... Not too many of the maps stand out, but I want to talk about standout missions in just a minute. I also feel like the UCS campaign is harder, but though not tremendously harder. People on Reddit were making a lot of noise in the um, in anticipation of this game coming out and right after this game came out, saying that the UCS campaign was noticeably more difficult, maybe at the beginning, but then it peters off and it's just smooth sailing until the end. So starting out, PMC, do you have a preference on a gameplay level? So you already planted your flag on a narrative level for the OCU campaign. How do you feel about gameplay? I, there's no question that the UCS campaign is better. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think um, this. I agree with the smaller party. I think the mission types are more varied. You know, you have scenarios where you're being encouraged to do an objective with an X number of turns, so that you can. And it has consequences for future missions. It feels like an, a campaign that actually sort of connects to each other. Like the a lot of the UCS campaign is organized into like narrative units where you'll do like a, a cluster of missions in support of a campaign, and then there'll be a longer narrative break. And I think that really works well for the, for the UCS campaign, uh, you know, I, I mean, to the credit of its page-turning uh, narrative a little bit, but more so for the gameplay part, because it creates a rhythm to the game in which you're doing a bunch of missions and then doing some narrative stuff. And I, I think you have RPGs, that's always sort of the most important thing, because it's a long game. I mean, it is a relatively longer game, and so you always want to have a rhythm that you can sort of sit into and be like, ah, yes, now this is the part where I do this stuff. So, I mean, it's it's not Vandal Hearts in terms of scenario design. Nothing is, but, <laughs> uh, you know, it's definitely better than the OCU campaign. It kind of reminds me of the binary, the Fire Emblem Fates binary between Birthright and Conquest. You played Birthright, correct? I I only I never played Conquest, but I played Birthright, yeah. Didn't a Fire Emblem fan, like, do some backseat driving when you were streaming that game like eight years ago, seven years ago? Uh, they, were, they were nice. I think they were pretty nice. They right. saw I was playing on casual, so they didn't really bother me too much. Yeah. Fire Emblem fans can be terrible about stuff like that. Sure, yeah, yeah. But Birthright is the more traditional Fire Emblem campaign, very straightforward. Conquest, though... Had, I thought Conquest was the more traditional one because you can't like grind or do side stuff in Conquest. Yeah, but the maps, though, are more varied. Oh, like, okay, the, there are okay. a lot of variabilities in the maps. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one map where like wind plays a factor and can blow your characters off the screen. Okay. I feel like Birthright lacks that, mm-hmm. so I feel like that dichotomy is kind of present in the front mission campaigns because there's more variability in um, the maps in the UCS campaign. But, and also Conquest, arguably, in a more traditional sense, is more difficult, too. 
Any standout missions for you? I think the most standout mission is probably the first UC, uh, UCS mission, just because if you're playing this game for the first time, you have just finished the OCU campaign, probably. Mm-hmm. A mission that, like, the final mission lets you bring your entire party, like 17 Vonzers or whatever, <laughs> and you just rush down the final boss, and you're all probably firing missiles at it because you're afraid to walk up to it. It's a big, it's a big hullabaloo. And then this has, you have three Vonzers. And it feels like you're outmatched. All the all of the number, numbers are back in single digits again. Like it really feels tense in a way that, um, and, and like you're doing an actual covert thing, and there's scripted events. Like Matt disables the power, and the green filter comes on for the night vision. Uh, I, I think it's just really, um, it really introduces you to uh, like a different way of playing the game that I kind of wish stuck around longer. Yeah. And the first two UCS missions feel like they're from a different game. Um, so I really kind of miss them, but I think that first mission is really, really good. Yeah. I bet there are people champing at the bit for us to talk about a bunch of our favorite missions, but most of them bleed together. My favorite mission was in the UCS campaign. I think it's the hardest mission of the game, even though I did have trouble with those first two missions, as you can see, if you watched us stream it, when you're taking freedom city and you're with hell's wall, you're fighting a bunch of onzers. They all have missiles attached to them. Like they're eroding your team. And it was it was very intense street fighting. Like I was glued to my seat because I didn't want to redo this mission. And at the very end, I, I had like two Vonzers left. I had to really prioritize. Um, dis- I had to really think about decisions like, am I going to attack this Vonzer's head, his arm? How am I going to maximize what little resources I have? Because most of my Vonzers have been picked off at that time. I had to consider how the Vonzer would retaliate to like my one or two remaining characters so they don't knock them off and I would lose the game. It was very, very tense, and I wish more missions were like that. Yeah, I definitely agree that the, the Hell's Wall fight is one, probably the highlight of the OCU campaign. You know, you have a bunch of characters with unique art, unique loadouts. There's two of them that are melee-focused. Two of them are range-focused. Two of them are uh, short-range focus. And, like, you know, they're, like, a, just a colorful cast of characters. And, you know, you're trying to... And they're, they're just better than you they just have better equipment so you kind of have to plan around that it's uh you know that was the fight where i was really i actually used chaff grenades i used a lot of law i used up all my missile ammo before closing in at short range Mm -hmm. you know i i I was really leaning into what options they provide in order to get through the fight yeah i'm hoping future games take that into consideration now I guess my last we talked my last comment on my notes here is just about difficulty takes, but we really already addressed that. Unless you had anything else new to say about it, not really. I mean, I I think the one, uh, I mean, this is this will bring us to the next session. But I mean, really, in terms of like, here's the problem: because of the limitations to the game's design, I'm not necessarily interested in things being more difficult. Yeah, because I don't feel like I have interesting tools that would be mm. pushed to you know to respond to the difficulty. If enemies had more HP, I would just be doing more and more and more of what I was describing with Hell's Wall, which was, you know, avoiding closing distance, using things to prevent from, you know, being attacked or shot, like things like chaff grenades. Maybe I would actually use acid, which I did not have not used once. Um, You know, I would use some of those things. I don't know how much they would like make the game more interesting it kind of it kind of depends like generally uh, the enemy ai in this game is pretty lax like you can you can usually aggro off them off like 
two like one or two at a time which makes it like pretty easy to chew them up they only get annoying when they fixate on like one damage unit and if you need that mm. unit alive they will dogpile right so they'll they'll do the fire emblem thing which is they 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 immediately see what is the unit that they could actually hurt Kick you when you're down and just like go straight for that you to to, to you know completely ignoring anything else including their own well-being yeah which doesn't really factor into a lot of the missions, though, because everyone's expendable. It's not there's no permadeath, right? There are some ex- there's no permadeath, but some you can't lose Royd, and there are other missions where there's s- certain characters you can't lose. Mm-hmm. But those yeah. are few and far between. But I agree with you. Um, my my complaints rest more with the maps. I think that if you were to pump up the difficulty in conjunction with some really interesting map design, that would be ideal. Right, I, and I think that interesting design, like the closest you're going to get to that, are missions where you would need to you know achieve some sort of spatial objective there's a few hidden missions for the OCU forces i don't know if you did all the secret missions no. but there were missions i forget actually one of them might be a UCS map but there's one mission where you have to defend a power plant okay i did not play this and you and you have enemies coming from three directions and so the enemies cannot get next to the power plant okay otherwise you fail and i did fail once so you have to spread out your units, deal with them that way. And there's also another mission where you have to defend a dam. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing there where you just have to you have to get up on top of the dam and then push the enemy units that are attacking the dam off of it. Okay. Uh, so those are examples, I think, of more interesting missions. But, of course, those are secret missions I think were added for the PlayStation remake and mm-hmm. then, of course, that reappear in, uh, in the DS version and the Switch version. I'm curious how much how different Front Mission 2089 is because that game came a whole lot later, but it uses the graphics and a lot of the gameplay engines of Front Mission first. I'm curious if that keeps the style of Front Mission first intact, but also adds some of this variability that I've been craving, or is it just a very basic ass Nintendo DS strategy RPG? We're nearing the end of our record, but we still have a few things I want to talk about. The first of which is quality of life improvements. Now, PMC, having played both campaigns originally on the DS, I think you're better equipped to tackle our next segment. What has been improved with this remake? So this is really like take note of this section, because when I've been talking to people online and trying to make a pitch for why play this version of the game, a lot of it has to do with quality of life stuff. Uh, I need to really emphasize how underfeatured the Super Famicom and pretty much every previous version of the game is, there are no battle animation skips mm. in the any previous version of the game. You can you have battle speed, which you can turn up, for example, in the DS version to sort of make the animation play a little faster. But if your goal is to really just you know chomp through it quickly for whatever reason, that is just not present in any previous version of the game. Uh, also added are movement animation skips. Mm. So you you know instead of having to 
see you know the climbing motions or you know the, the the sort of zipping slide i didn't mind i i mean i played casually with everything on default yeah same which i usually don't do if i'm playing fire emblem i'll just i'll, I'll nix the battle animations but for a front mission i kept them so yeah i mean i i enjoyed them fine you know i, I always enjoy that kind of feeling of seeing the to me the the battle that battle animation in a strategy rpg is always kind of the, the dice roll you watch yeah. the dice roll you know and you see does it does the missile hit does this happen the Whatever. missile hitting is very satisfying yeah <laughs> Actually, you know what's one thing we talked about? And let's add this little gameplay segment in here. A lot of people who have never played Front Mission before have been complaining about how damage is distributed in battles. You want to address that, PMC? Yeah. So the you know, so if you're unfamiliar with it, the Vonsers have four body parts typically. They have a body, left arm, right arm, leg. The body is the thing that is like if it goes, the whole thing goes. Left arm, right arm correspond to weapons, legs affect mobility. And at first, your damage is assigned randomly. It just kind of goes wherever. Uh, uh, you know, if you're shooting a machine gun, you might hit several different parts. If you're using a single impact weapon, like a rifle or a fist, that's going to do more damage, but only to one part. And it might not be the part you want. And I can understand that kind of randomness is... You know, it's sort of unfavorable, but to me, that's the game is very much the game is two things. Initially, it is planning to account for that randomness, mm-hmm. and then by the halfway point of the game, it's doing so much damage with machine guns <laughs> that you are hosing enemies completely of all four parts and harvesting them for XP. That is so. I like the randomness. I think it complements. It is front mission, but I think it also complements the role, the nature of battles, the the randomness that uh, mm-hmm. would factor into any military conflict. It's so satisfying when you unexpectedly knock out an arm, a leg, multiple appendages is super satisfying. Or knocking everything out all at once is less satisfying when you're overpowered, but still, you do get a bit of thrill from it. Yeah, and like what I think. What also makes it work is that you might unexpectedly take out a unit early by destroying its body. You might disable one of its guns, and that changes the calculus of what you're doing. You know what's so satisfying? Knocking out an arm and preventing the enemy from attack- counterattacking. That's so great. It's so good. You know, like so. That, I mean, that to me is the the sort of joy of seeing how things pan out. Yeah. Um. It's also really cool when what. When you like have a sliver of HP left in your arm, but you decide to fuck it, I'm going to risk it. Everyone counterattack, be damned, and they end up attacking another part of your Vonzer. That's that's the good stuff, baby. I wish the game were. I don't want to say a little more difficult, but I'm going to say it anyway, a little more difficult to make those like hail mary passes a little bit more thrilling. Yeah, it's it's very weird because what ends up being the issue is that because you get bonus XP from taking out parts, and you can take out more parts more quickly with short. You also hit the experience cap very quickly, which yeah. is not something that we've talked about. But that's kind of the the weird, the weird, the weird thrill of the end of the game is that by the end of the game, your powerful units have all capped out by like two thirds of the way through the game, and they're just sort of coasting along. And you're wondering, are the enemies going to get powerful enough by the end of the game that I won't be able to complete the end of the game? And the answer is really no, for the most part. Uh, but it's definitely it's definitely weird. It is unusual. This this is where the vision of the OCU campaign exceeds the mechanics because then you have this huge ass party and you're just like 
You're like a kindergarten teach kindergarten teacher, like shepherding your kids. The kids you really don't need on the map from like one location to another. It's just a hassle. I mean, you can reduce the number of Vonzers, but theoretically, these maps were made for like eleven Vonzers in mind. Right. You, you could. You can bring fewer. More on that in a second. But uh, generally speaking, you're you're probably not going to do that. Uh, certainly, Child Me would not do that. Child Me loved having a million units. Yeah, and even. 34-year-old me still kept all of them on, even mm. though it was really just Roy and Natalie <laughs> yeah. um, coasting through. Did you ever play in classic mode? No, I was going to bring that up now. Okay. I played... You didn't play classic, did you? I, no, played, I modern. played modern mode for both, yeah. Yeah, so explain the difference. It's really that you could manipulate the camera, right? Yeah, it's really extra features in modern mode, which is to say that you can move the camera around a little bit. You also have the tactical view, which is really nice because it gives you a, like a big sky view of everything. Yeah, that's so great. It really is good. It, it also really... it complements the toyetic feel, too, because imagine if you were like Lovejoy from The Simpsons with, with your train, like model trains, kits, all all on your desk and you're just like examining the nooks and crannies of your diorama. It has a similar feel to that. And you also have original and reorchestrated OSTs. If you're so inclined, I did the reorchestrated stuff. I did the reorchestrated stuff. I mean, again, I've played the game already on DS years ago. So I was like, I, to me, I was like max new stuff. Let's go. It's not that different. It's not. It's, it's not. Like, it's not like the you got the Prague Orchestra or something yeah. um, playing its heart out. It's fine. It has a little bit more oomph. Shima Moore obviously had no con- new contributions to this, nor did she have a hand in remaking any of this music. I guess remastering it. It's fine. It's serviceable. Like like the Amano portraits, for example. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And also, I've been addressed. I've been harping on difficulty a bit there are many difficulty options which i don't think were all were present in the ds version yeah I, i'm i think there were some higher difficulty options present for new game plus you i'm like not five sure. here right? yeah there's a bunch of higher options that go like way up and there's also a a rookie difficulty option to, that was definitely not present in previous versions of the game that just has damage dealt mm-hmm. to uh to the player character uh, so that, I mean, so if you, you know, so if you really don't want to stress out at all, that really does, uh, it kind of trivializes things. Um, Cause it might make it like a chore, just dragging your feet through mm-hmm. like dragging your Vonsers through these maps. Yeah. Uh, and there's also a few other things. There's one other thing I want to mention that in term, we already talked a little bit about forever entertainment and their post launch support. And that has also been the case. We can say now with, uh, with this remake, where I, in particular, I think at this time, the 1.03 patch would have been the most recent big patch released for this. And that covered a bunch of things, a bunch of bugs. Like I did have a few crashes. Uh, I think usually for me, it was whenever the guide uh, UI came up for mm. missiles. I had three or four crashes of, of the game uh, that I think have been fixed now. I have not had a crash since using this, uh, this patch. Good. Great to hear. Uh, one of the things that they did that I really, really want to shout them out for, uh, I just talked about guide. There are two school skills in the game, duel and guide, that will enable you to either, as a short-range attacker using duel or as a long-range attacker using guide, it will prompt you to select a body part to target, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of the ways that as you get more veteran soldiers, it counteracts the randomness. It lets you just target a body part. Now... Some enemies, which is to say non-Vonzer enemies, only have a body. Tanks, turrets, certain kinds of mobile armors will only have a body part. 
previous versions of this game would still give you the prompt mm. to select body or no target. Those are the same option. <laughs> Forever Entertainment, credit to them, have prevented that from happening. It now just does it. It just attacks without asking you to make a stupid, meaningless choice. Now, uh, living your best life is all about reducing redundancies like that. I will say, by the midpoint of the game, and I had a few long-range Vonzers, I was like, I almost prefer not having guide because I wanted the thrill of the <laughs> randomization. Mm-hmm, yeah. So it's kind of like, I wish there was a way you could not choose anything, which there isn't. You have to choose a body part with guide, I think, right? Uh, so you can, uh, in the old UI, in like Front Mission DS, you would just select the bottom option. Mm-hmm. In Front Mission Remake, I believe you just there is a prompt at the bottom to hit X, and you can just not target. Oh, I wish I knew that, because yeah. I would just choose body. So you just, yeah, hit X, and then it'll let you do whatever. Oh, damn. Um, but, yeah, I mean, so anyway, that's also... Having it on a different button input is also better yeah. than having to go down <laughs> to no target, which, again, is what you would have done. Uh, you know, under the uh, the previous uh, you know the previous regime in, mm-hmm. the, in the DS and ver- previous versions. I guess we'll address this at the very end. But these quality of life touches, while not revolutionary, are much appreciated. Yeah, they are very very good for for reasons I'll get into shortly. section is before our closing thoughts that is is speed running which pmc has had the i i I have the honor of being physically in front of a front mission first remake speed runner the only the only one remake (laughs) speed runner so you know we can talk a little bit i mean this is the first time that we've covered speed running and front mission on a simulator episode of course we had talked about it with our other simulator episodes for armored core and zardion and what i'm going to say is probably not going to be very surprising Series wide, there isn't really that much speed running of the of front mission. Bef- in twenty twenty two, a runner named Maelstrom one thousand one did a speed run of the DS version. Maelstrom seems to be a series enthusiast. Uh, they've done speed runs of like one, three, and four, and they've also done playthroughs of two with the fan translation. So they're definitely they really care about front mission. And they ended up being, I think, the first person to do this sort of speed playthrough. And I think it was like maybe it wasn't like a highly optimized run, but they, you know, they're experienced RPG speedrunner, and they had done a few playthroughs. And I think their run came out to a round uh, around six hours is is where they ended up. And uh, so, and of course, again, that was on the. They, I think they were emulating uh, the DS version of the game. Uh, yeah, so it was about six hours and forty four minutes, and. I came along and I did a test playthrough with the Switch version, and I, and again I switched everything to the speed run maximum. So battle animation skips on, movement animation skips on, rookie difficulty, you know. And I I just I said I'm gonna go for it, and uh, and generally speaking, in most fights, I only bring Royd. <laughs> uh, you don't really need anyone else. You end up having to use Pee Wee. Pee Wee is actually 
useful because you're, I mean, Pee Wee starts out tanky, so he gets to kill enough things. The sh- maxing out, I did max out short XP with Pee Wee. Interesting. In the speed run. I maxed out dodge XP on Royd in the speed run. Okay. Impressive. Uh, and so I was able to finish the game using the DS version in just over four hours. Okay. Well, like four hours, three minutes. Uh, and so it's definitely, uh, <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's weird again, because you're able to use the truck and only Royd. Uh, I upgraded parts every few battles. Generally speaking, the way I played the game was that I had always had two machine guns, usually preferring number of shots over power of shot. Mm-hmm. That makes uh, sense. So you, again, that's just because you're, you're by having max short XP, you have, you have so emphasized everything that you want more hits. And then once you max out your short XP, you're no longer worried about trying to get more short range skills. Typically you'll have dual at that point. Mm-hmm. And so you always just shoot the body. Yeah. You just, just, just do it. Um, in terms of order of skills that you want to learn, you would do want to learn speed first because speed is the thing that will most dramatically increase your damage. That also gives you the most opportunities to upgrade speed, upgrade switch, the skill switch, and then, you know, and then get dual. So that's typically the order you want to go is speed, switch, dual. Uh, no long-range weapons. You just put shields on the shoulder. The only enemy who really presents a problem when you are super maxed out on short and dodge is the final boss. It is the two forms of Driscoll. The way you deal with that is really that you just guard when he when Driscoll attacks you in either form. And the added damage reduction from being maxed out on dodge XP mm-hmm. as well as having the shoulder shields means that he really doesn't end up doing that much damage to you at all. He does some damage to you, which is why you don't just counterattack. Okay. Um, but he does so little that the calculus, when you're attacking him, taking the counterattack and then defending his turns, is that it works out in your favor. You do bring some healing, but like that's pretty much the end of it. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much all I did, and it was enough. Uh, I have done a test playthrough of the UCS campaign. That's even more simplified because there's no peewee. Yeah. You just use you use Kevin the whole time. I would love to see the UCS version of Peewee. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess maybe not. Yeah. I mean, I will say, you know, we didn't get to, we didn't talk about this when we were comparing gameplay. The repair backpack just kind of makes things nicer. Peewee is, you don't really want Peewee on the battlefield. It's yeah. just, it's a hassle every mm-hmm. turn. <laughs> um, so having the option to either attack or repair with Haley is just better. Yeah. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Um, again, that's another thing to say. UCS is better. So yeah, I mean that's where that's where Front Mission One speedrunning is. Is that there is a runner who did a DS emulator run. Uh, I have done a Switch OCU you know remake run. I might do a UCS run at some point just to put something up on the board. No one's done UCS for DS or anything like that. So that's hasn't been done there. New frontier. New frontier. Um, I, I, I imagine that would be shorter just because there are fewer missions and because there are fewer units. The fight is mm-hmm. my expectation for what the, what the play time on that would be. The biggest trick with the UCS campaign is just the sequences. The sequences are much weirder in terms of how you activate mm-hmm. the next cluster of missions. You know, you have to like talk to people here and then back out or go back, talk to the commanding officer. Uh, you know, there's some parts where your commanding officer will tell you like, take a break then you have to do something yeah. to advance time. 
so but obviously that's simple routing once you know you know mm-hmm. and then and then the routing is done um so that's pretty much gonna be my future plans uh right now i mean i can say pretty safely that these remake versions would probably be the only ones i want to speed run i'm not usually an rpg speedrunner. imagine if you were streaming front mission at a gdq event for four plus hours that would never i mean i guarantee you that will never happen what might happen though is I might shop it to RPG Limit Break, which is another in-person speedrun marathon that is all RPGs. Cool. Uh, it takes place in Salt Lake City every year. Benefits the uh, National Association for Mental Health, I think, something like that. I, I probably didn't get that exactly right, but mm-hmm. you know, supporting a worthy cause. Uh, and so I might, I might shop it out there. We'll see. I mean, I, I, the problem is when you when you send a, a speedrun to a marathon, you want to make a good argument for what you're showcasing. <laughs> I, I worry I have difficulty making that argument. But the other thing there, too, is that what can make an RPG speedrun interesting is the micro-optimizations. The macro route may just remain that simple mm-hmm. for this game, but what you're going to be looking at then is how, on a turn-by-turn basis, you can maximize you know, the application of damage, how you can bait enemies to come to you quicker, those are all things that you would be doing to make the speed run go by faster, uh, you know, from in an RPG perspective for a strategy RPG. You know what? I, if a front mission game were ever to make an appearance at a GDQ event, I imagine it would be of all things left alive, just considering the interesting talent behind it and how janky that game can get or gun hazard. This all well, gun hazard is interesting because there is no uh, there is no speedrun.com page for that. It's probably a longer playthrough because I know that game yeah. has some meat to it. Do you know what front mission game has the most runs and runners? Is it evolved? Yes, yeah. it is evolved. That is correct. It is like a like a fifty minute some run. I think I have not watched the run. I don't know if it's a good run, but based on the length, I think that's probably the most likely. I think Left I like Alive... the nostalgia is not there for that, though. You're, the, you're right. The nostalgia is not there. <laughs> not to say people have nostalgia for Left Alive, but you could talk about Shoji Kawamori. You can talk about... Not Shoji Kawamori. Uh, Shinkawa. Mm-hmm. You could talk about... I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> Other Le- things. Left Alive is like a one-hour 20 run. Mm. So uh, whenever we cover that, I will think about finishing it and running it. And not a moment sooner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. um you've speed run most of the games we've covered on Simulator with yes. the exception of Zardia. Which I will never speed run. Uh, Holy submit, crap. Submit the, talk about a game that is primed for a GDQ event, Zardion. You know, you're right. You are right. There, I, I've watched the speed run, it's short enough. Uh I think there's enough going on with the strategies that a you know the the two D platformer kind of person would be into it. I am not gonna be that runner. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't blame you. But yeah, that really brings us to the end of our episode. It's been a joy, PMC, to discuss Front Mission First with you. It's been a little a goal of ours since the beginning to actually play a Front Mission game and talk about it. And here we are, a, basically, literally a year later, from the founding of Giant Robot FM. Yeah, we did it. it the, the remake came out, yep. and now we've podcasted about it. Yeah, uh, we've we've given this game more coverage than I think anyone in the game's media <laughs> landscape has really done. It does feel like that. Almost five hours of front mission, which is mm-hmm. good. Um, I'm ecstatic. I'm looking forward to more. I mean, I, I don't know if you, do you want to talk about our, our future roadmap for front mission or depends when two gets announced. Like the thing is like for our simulator schedule, we wanted to prioritize. We want to continue 
our journey through the From Software Mecca back catalog, which means that we're doing Frame Grind next. Yep. Now, nope. to be to be fair, we're not gonna we're gonna prioritize Armored Core Six when it comes out, whenever that will be. Any guesses, PMC? It'll be this year, I think. I think if it comes out this year, it'll be December. Yeah, I I've, I'm, I think it's going to be this year because I imagine they have a Souls like in the wings that they want to debut for 2024 or further in the future. But yeah, so we're prioritizing Frame Grind next. After that, probably Gunbuster, just because we'll be deep in the Gunbuster coverage, and we got to talk about the Gunbuster porn trivia game, among other games. <laughs> I forgot about that. There's that, the the PC Engine mm-hmm. duology, and the PS2 game. After that, the worlds are oyster. I We're, go, we're going in order. We're going to do Gun Hazard. I'm really interested in checking out Gun Hazard. A lot of interesting history behind it. Uh, a murderer's row of compositional talent uh, did the music for that game. Mitsuda, uh, Uematsu, the other Final Fantasy X guy, I think. Remember the three people? Hamazu? Hamazu was a contributor, but okay. the, the, there's a fourth composer who I think was the third composer yes. on 10. Okay. Who did the worst tracks in 10. <laughs> I love Hamazu. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is the only mech game he's contributed to, unless you want to count Final Fantasy VII Remake. And I think he's retiring. So we might not have another chance to talk about him. But of course, Mitsuda is the, the big deal yeah. here. Yeah. And I'm really curious how that soundtrack plays out because I haven't listened to much of it. And then From Mission 2 after that, and then the world's our oyster. We'll see what comes next. From Mission 3. Oh, alternative. Yeah, in my mind, I want to do alternative, and I want to do an episode. So I guess we might not be going in chronological order. order. Alternative and online, give mm-hmm. it a whole episode. It also depends how playable alternative is, because alternative, I think you can get the menus in English, but you'll still miss the plot. I hear it's uh, a, you have a bear of a time trying to get that patch to work for alternative. Is there an alternative patch? A very bare bones, uh, incomplete okay. patch. Uh, yeah, I wasn't even translates I mean, maybe some menus. Okay, we'll see. I'm assuming I'm going to have my poly megabyte done. We'll see if that has enough horsepower sure. to get that working. I do have one closing comment though. There has been some news, some unfortunate news, I guess, in the world of Front Mission. There was a Chinese company called Blackjack Studio, and they got the rights to reimagine and I guess remake Front Mission 2089, which was originally a mobile front mission game using like the style of the first front mission and then it got a ds port which has yet to be fan translated and i think it sounded like a gotcha game it was supposed to come out on pc and mobile the company had previously done a mobile langrisser game however it appears and fans are doing a little reading in between the lines here but it seems that they're they're still making that mech game but is no longer taking place in the front mission universe it is no longer officially a square enix approved front mission game which is a shame because i was i am interested in checking out 2089 and by the time we get to it i imagine there will be no fan translation so there'll be no way to really play it so wait, was this supposed to be a 2089 remake because we're talking about border escape right i thought it was like taking elements from 2089 i don't okay. i don't think it was a third game that was my understanding i just I could thought be so wrong. little was known about it yeah there was concept art but i guess when i read the news articles about it, it seemed like they were reimagining the events of tw- okay uh, the yeah DS i mean game. makes sense I mean, I mean i could be wrong if you're doing it for an international audience it's not like they play 2089 to begin with right yeah and the concept art, art is sick it yeah. whips yeah, yeah, um, yeah, definitely but yeah yeah so we'll see what out. comes of that yeah if anything yeah i'm curious what the front mission landscape is going to look like post three if there will ever be another front mission game after that and i actually think there won't be i don't think we'll ever get a front mission six nah i i can't I, it, 
the way people talk about five, it sounds like such a conclusion to things uh, that I just don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know how people would do it, what the, what the, the pitch would be. Now, speaking of pitches and promotions, PMC, promote the hell out of Giant Robot FM. Yeah, so if you're listening to this when it's come out, that means you're already a patron supporter of Giant Robot FM. Thank you very much for your support, especially for our support here with the simulator projects. We've just talked for a bit about what you can expect in the future. Uh, So please look forward to that. Uh, If you want to have some spare time, you want to give us some support over on our main feed, the public feed that we publish on iTunes, Spotify, elsewhere. We, of course, would always love to you have us have you rate and review us on any of those platforms would be very helpful uh remember of course that you know if you're supporting us on patreon you'll have access to other things like the patreon exclusive discord as well as our bonus podcast series right now we are very close to launching moonrace wireless which will be our long-term project covering individual episodes of turn a gundam we also of course plan to cover the second core of Mobile Suit Gundam, The Witch from Mercury, when that broadcasts in April of 2023, hopefully. Got to watch that dub. It's on my things to do list. Yep, the, the dub that's coming out, which I guess we'll talk about probably on one of our episodes before we get to uh, you know doing that, that second core coverage. Uh, there's so little published about that besides that the prologue episode is on Crunchyroll at the time that we're recording this, which is very interesting. <laughs> so So watch out for that. Um, in terms of main feed coverage, of course, you can expect soon to see our G Savior coverage begin. So please look forward to that. We expect to spend a few weeks really savoring. We expect to G Saver, G Savior. <laughs> uh, so please, I, I I know I am already. I've watched the movie. I think it's I think it's perfectly good. I look forward to talking about it. Uh, and so you look forward to that. And then of course, beyond that, you know, lots of great things in 2023. Gunbuster. And, you know, Big O and other things. So, you know, we'll, we'll always be uh, pushing out updates on that. So please look forward to that. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use and credit to Fretzel, hashtag ban Fretzel, for the music that we use. I'm frantically trying to search up the search the cover for From Mission so I don't botch the famous phrase that everyone's saying. How does a man survive on Huffman Island? <sighs> Steven, how does a podcast survive on the island that Huffman has become? 